0: If your translation is as mine, it starts with taste and see that the Lord is good. That is supplied by the translator. But the biblical text starts with the words of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack Lord, help our unbelief. Help it right now. Aid us, we pray, as we seek to align our thoughts and our beliefs to what Your Word has revealed. There's a lot that we see and a lot that we experience that does not seem to align with what You have said here. May all of Your people in this place today who hear these words know that the task is for us to change. Not to rewrite Your Word. May we hear it. May we heed it. May we believe it. For those that know not Christ as Savior, I pray that these words of condemnation at the end of this psalm would not be lightly dismissed. But I pray that they would realize the danger of godless living and of trust in self. I pray, Father, according to your mercies, that you would open this passage for us today, this psalm, and that you will do with it what you desire. Teach your people your truth, and bring those in the darkness into light, that they may see, that they may taste, that the Lord is good. And We will thank you for what you're pleased to do among us here. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. Psalm 34 reveals this fundamental truth. God delivers His people from all of their troubles. Now there are two sides to this equation. First is the human side. Some people belong to God and others do not. He becomes our Lord and we become His chosen people. Living in a fallen world, God's people face troubles, afflictions of all shapes and sizes and pains without number. We belong to God and we suffer trouble. There's a second part of this equation, the divine side, and that is that the Lord is a God of steadfast, loyal love. And the Lord rejoices then to liberate His people. To deliver, to redeem, to rescue us from our troubles, our persecutions, and our sufferings. You have to only be half awake through this reading of Psalm 34 to realize King David is filled with joyful celebration of God's deliverance from all of his troubles. That's clear. But you'd be equally groggy if you missed the fact that David suffered grave difficulty. You see it there in verse 4? He speaks of fears. In verse 6, he speaks of troubles. In verse 17, again, the word shows up. Troubles. In verse 18, he speaks of the broken hearted. In verse 18, of those crushed in spirit. In verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. This isn't fantasy land. This is a real hard world. But Psalm 34 also reveals a God who answers the anguished cry of His desperate people whose spirits are crushed, who delivers them from all of their troubles and their afflictions. So, fundamental is the biblical theme that God delivers His people from all their troubles. One can hardly be a Christian who doubts it. It is elementary. Jesus saves His people from their sins. But there's more to it here in Psalm 34. Maybe your mind just kind of like hope to dismiss it, to set it aside. But let's face it, square on. It says, verse 4, He de- delivers us from all my fears. Verse 6, All of our troubles. Verse 10, we lack no good thing. Verse 17, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19, the Lord delivers them out of all of them. How do we answer that? How do we square this with the world that we see? Well, perhaps this passage is speaking only of deliverance from hell, only of final deliverance of salvation ultimately. It's pretty clear in the context that that's not the case, but maybe that would be an answer. Or some might say it's applicable only to believers under the old covenant with its unique emphasis on physical blessings. So it really isn't applicable that way to us when The psalmist says all of his troubles, he's saying so under that Old Covenant relationship, which we're not under any longer, so not us. Or the third possibility is just simply not me. I see God's Word. I see what He says. I see His promises. He delivers His people from all of their troubles, but He skips me. Not me. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it too much. I don't want to speak to God about it much. But as I think about it, not me. I'd like to persuade us today from the outset that none of these qualifiers is accurate. When God promises to deliver His people from all of our troubles, He means that He promises to deliver us from all of our troubles. It will take faith to believe this. And more than a simplistic application to our lives. But make no mistake, God delivers His people from all of their troubles. On His terms and for our joy. And letting stand fears, troubles, broken heartedness, a crushed spirit and afflictions. The single theme is really threaded throughout the psalm from start to finish. If we need to, we could divide it into two sections, verses 1 through 10. Here we have a call to praise based on David's own experience, a call to praise. And then in verses 11 through 22, a call to synchronize our lives to the Lord who delivers his people. There's an increasingly moral component here in verses 11 through 22. Indeed, even in an eschatological view, that is a future view, a final salvation view. So first of all, a call to praise the Lord who delivers His people. Verse Before verse 1, the superscript there is biblical text. It's a reference to the passage that Andrew read earlier from First Samuel 21. Saul, the king of Israel, was hunting David like a wild animal intent on killing him simply because he was jealous of him. And in that mix, you can imagine running for your life, what that means every day as you get up. Or didn't go to sleep because you're running for your life. David so despaired of life, he did what he thought had to be done. It was really the unthinkable to relieve the pressure, he flees west to the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea and he joins forces with the Philistines, who are the sworn enemies of Israel. When you think about it, David is, is facing some intense trouble. His life hung by a thin thread. But when David stood in Abimelech's court, Abimelech, if you're Following that, Achish in 1 Samuel 21, Abimelech is probably like Pharaoh, a title. But when David stood in Abimelech's court, Achish's warriors were more impressed with David's past military success against them than they were with his attempt to curry favor with their king. And suddenly it dawned on David, this didn't work. I'm a dead man. He had made a major miscalculation. However he played this in his mind, however he worked it out, it didn't work. In that desperate state, a thought passed David's mind that maybe if I pretend that I'm insane, if I pretend that I'm a raving lunatic, if I begin to drool and walk around like somebody who is crazed, maybe that is my way of escape. It wasn't a happy moment. It was a humiliating moment. This is a warrior in Israel. This is one to whom people sang praises in the streets. This is the one who slew Goliath. And he's acting like a lunatic. He's pretending. What does Achish say? This warrior to the warrior get this madman out of my court. David escapes in that situation by the slimmest of margins. The next three verses are almost hard to reconcile with this deeply humiliating experience for a proud warrior of Israel. We might expect David to hang his head in shame, to duck attention, But he explodes with praise. Verse 1 of 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. There's a play on words here in the Hebrew that's interesting. Something like, let them hear and cheer. Only the poor in spirit who are humble before the Lord could be glad in such boasting. They do not boast in their own glory or rejoice to hear others boast in the glories of man. They boast only in the glory of the Lord. To these people, David lifts up his words. And to such people, he issues this invitation, verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Those who rejoice in the Lord realize intuitively that my lips aren't enough. I need to be joined by the tongues and by the lips of others who are around me. They long for others to join them, and their collective praise to God has the sanctifying effect of displacing words of pride and self-pity and anxiety and bitterness and resignation and discouragement. We replace those words with the words of praise. When the focus is on God, our words bend upward in delight and focus forward. They focus forward to the end, for instance, to Revelation 5, where I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, writes John. And all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and in the sea, announcing the glories of the Lord. There is, on this Lord's day, here in this place today, there has been a prophecy taking place. Joining together our voices of praise, to fill our mouths with praises that prophesy that great day of final deliverance when all the universe will join us to the praise and the glory of Christ. Verses 4-7, through David builds his invitation to praise upon his own experience of God's rescuing grace. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and He answered me and He delivered me from all of my fears. The word sought doesn't mean he's trying to locate God and can't find Him, but he sought Him in the sense of going to Him for wisdom, for fellowship, perhaps for restoration of relationship. And the result is that God delivered me from all of my fears, from all of my terrors both the inner anxieties he's been delivered and the source of these fears. Now notice verse 5, David pans out from his own experience and expresses a universal principle. Verse 5, Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to him, that is those who look toward God in reverent fear. Those who look to him in hope are radiant, that is opposed to ashamed. Imagine there's a spy in a foreign land. He infiltrates the enemy's highest circles of power and becomes friends with some of these influencers of this nation. He's collecting his information subtly, putting it all together in his mind. He's accomplishing his work And in the mix of his work, he's invited to play chess with one of the officials, the key officials. What he also knows is that there's a helicopter at a certain place where he needs to be at a certain time to get out of this land with the information and to succeed on his mission. And to get there on time, he's got to blow this chess game. He really wants to beat this guy. But he bumbles purposefully, he blows the game, he loses quickly, and his counterpart looks at him with ridicule. You're that dumb? You can't play a better game than that? And he berates him and belittles him and says, don't ever play chess with me again, I need a a more worthy opponent. That spy gets out of there and blows the game early so he can get to the rendezvous point. He reaches it, he gets in the helicopter he flies to safety as he 's going away. How do you picture him sulking that he lost the chess game? The chess math not at all he 's radiant. I did it i 'm going home i 've accomplished my mission. That's David here. He had to be insane in front of, play insanity in front of this king. He was belittled. He was looked down on. That's small compared to what God has done to deliver him. He's heading out on the helicopter and his face is radiant. And so it is with those who trust in the Lord. Their faces can be radiant, not ashamed he comes back to his own experience again in verse 6, he says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. I came within an inch of death, but my master, my king, rescued me out of all my troubles. Indeed, broadens it again to all of us by way of principle. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps as leader of an army of angels circuiting those who fear God. Reminds us of 2 Kings 6. Remember that account? The king of Assyria with a vast army has surrounded the walled city of Dothan. Inside that city, behind those walls, is Elisha and his servant. This whole Syrian army circles it. I mean, it's a small place, but with walls. They circle it that night, waiting for the morning light, and they're going to come in, and they're going to take Elisha out. In the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, and he sees this army circling the city, and says in so many words, Elisha, we are in big trouble. Remember what Elisha says? God opened his eyes to see. And circling, the circling Syrian army is a host of chariots of fire. The angels of God. And in that account, God intervenes for the two against the host of Syrian soldiers. He blinds them miraculously. Miraculously. And Elisha and his servant live. I mean, you'd look at it and go, they're done. It's over. There's no hope. But look beyond, says Elisha, and you will see the hosts of the Lord. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. He encircles those who fear him, and he delivers them. God strikes the Syrian army blind. Elisha and his servant are rescued from the jaws of death. David is rescued from the court of Achish. God does this. He rescues his people. And sometimes it's quite dramatic. You don't know how many times I don't illustrate from John Payton's biography So, forgive me yet again, but this is just too good to not share. He ministered as a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands and was on the island of Tanna to begin with, which was occupied by tribes of primitive man eating natives. And I mean, they ate people, they took them down and just had them for lunch. And he's ministering to these people, seeking to proclaim Christ to them they have determined that he's up to no good and we want to eat John. We're going to kill him. That can't be too hard. We just go to his mission house, walk through the house, find him and kill him. It's that simple. They go to the house, he's not there. That night, knowing what was planned against him, he was so exhausted, John came back to the house, fell asleep, His dog wakes him up and he realizes his predicament, much like Elisha. His home is surrounded by warriors that want to take him out. And then he realizes that they've set the church building on fire and connecting the church building to his house is a fence that's also on fire. So he either fries and he's ready to eat or he runs out and they club him to death pretty foolproof plan I mean what can go wrong with this on their side of things and what can go right on this from his side of things so if you picture this huddled in the house with another missionary couple as the fire consumes the church and work this way along a reed fence toward the house Peyton ran out, broke down the fence to stop the fire's progress, surrounded by eight warriors, who for reasons unknown to anybody, waited for a few moments. And as they hesitated, surrounding him, waiting to strike the first blow and to kill missionary Peyton, a roaring wind Came up. It was so loud and it was so sudden that they all stopped and looked. And with this roaring wind off the sea, it was unusual but could happen in a place like that, there came a heavy cloud with a torrent of rain that broke so hard against them it put the fire out and sent the warriors running off into the woods. Some of them exclaiming, as they ran. This is Jehovah's reign. Wow! He returned to the house. His missionary friends let him in. And he says, In fear and in joy we united our praises. Often since have I wept over his love and mercy in that deliverance. Beautiful end. Well, not really. The next day they came back to finish the job. I mean, if they hadn't gotten the point, God brings this rain right off the sea and douses their fire. They come back at him again to kill him this time and to make sure they finish the job. And just as they are at his house, there's a yell that goes out and there's a ship out on the sea. And through a series of more harrowing events, he's rescued by that ship and taken away and saved. God's people... Are invincible if God wills it, and if He wills our demise, we fall with heaven's hosts surrounding with chariots of fire watching. David again calls for our response in verse eight, where he says, "O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack." Have you experienced that the Lord is good? As we are to know that He is good, we are also to fear Him. That is to reverence and honor Him. Fearing the Lord displaces other attitudes. And so often, these attend our troubles self pity, demanding spirit, anxiety, bitterness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's His goodness that matters. And the promise here in verse 9 is that you'll have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger. The young lions, that's young, mature lions at the height of strength and agility. Their killing power is more likely to go empty than God's people who seek Him. The Young lions may suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So this call to praise, based on David's own experience, this is who the Lord is. We transition then at verse 11 to a call to synchronize our lives to the Lord who delivers His people. A call to praise Him, and now a call to synchronize our lives morally and eschatologically. That is, with a view to the future. To synchronize our lives with this God. In the ethical realm, verse 11, we, f- we suddenly break into what sounds like the book of Proverbs here. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Enter now into the courts of David as he, in the palace as his students listen and hear his teaching and the rudiments of wisdom. God who delivers deserves our full devotion and obedience, David insists. We're called to synchronize our lives to his wisdom, to live with skill. Fear the Lord. This is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? That's all people, of course. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. When we synchronize our lives with the Lord, our speech is purified. We run from evil. We do good. We seek shalom. That is peace. Not just simply peace, a lack of hostilities, but a spiritual wholeness that results from being reconciled with God and then a sense of peace in the presence of others. In the eschatological realm, as we're looking forward and we're looking to end times. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are toward their cry. The sense of the Hebrew is that when we cry for God's help, He moves towards us. Isn't this what we do? The human realm, right out here, a couple weeks ago, there was a boy that fell to the earth hard (laughs) and his head hit the ground just a little toddler, and his father was standing a few feet away and just immediately jumped to his son's aid, picked him up off the ground, held him in his arms, and began to comfort him while the kid continued to cry and scream and hurt. We look at that father and go, that's what a father does. That's a good thing, right? Do we imagine that God our Father acts differently? He steps back with apathy when we are in trouble and says, I don't care. Or I'm busy and I've got other things to do. That father at the moment was busy. But he jumped immediately to action as his child fell. Our God is no different than that other than he's far more superior. And that boy as he was held in his father's arms was still hurting. And when God holds us in His arms when we're hurting, we're still hurting. He is not saying, I will deliver you from your troubles such that there's no pain. But He is saying, I'll pick you up. I'll hold you to my chest and I'll speak words of comfort. But we must align our lives to God. Verse 16, the face of the Lord, in fact, is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. He warns us here of the dire consequences when one does not fear the Lord. No protection, no compassion, no heritage. Those who live a life of evil doing cry out for deliverance in a soundproof universe. God does not move. But, verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Just to be certain we get it, David comes back to it again. Verse 18 The Lord is near the brokenhearted, He saves the crushed in spirit. When trials shatter and crush the spirit of God's people, we are often tempted to think that God has abandoned us. Not me. He might deliver others, but not me. Christian, look at this carefully. Verse 18. He is near you. It may be dark, you may not see Him. It may be deftly quiet, and you may not hear Him. He's there. He's near. He draws near to His people in their troubles. He saves those with crushed spirit. Do God's people suffer? Are they afflicted? Verse 19, let's get this straight. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is not as some false teachers are saying these days, do the right thing and God will take all the troubles away. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Not many are the afflictions of those who don't have much faith. Not many are the afflictions of those who don't give enough money to our ministry. Not many are the afflictions of the bad people. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many afflictions. This isn't la-la land. This is reality. But, verse 19, the Lord delivers Him out of them all. Yet again, the Lord delivers His people. Verse 20, He keeps all His bones, not one of them, Is broken. This is not a literal promise, of course, but a figure of speech, meaning that God protects us in the midst of suffering. And yet, there is a literal fulfillment, isn't there, in the life of Jesus. Remember the Passover lamb, Exodus 12. No bones were to be broken. And John in his Gospel says, fulfilling this wholly and literally, not a bone of Jesus' body was broken. That is amazing. With all the suffering that he endured... Not a bone was broken in fulfillment of this promise. Not one bone. Affliction, verse 21, will slay the wicked. Again, we pop back to the other side of it. Those opposed to God and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. What is it that slays the wicked? Their afflictions. That is, the righteous are rescued by God from their afflictions, but those lost in sin have no one to rescue them, and their afflictions will eat them alive. Their law-breaking way of life, their rejection of God's truth, becomes a wrecking ball that crashes into their house and crumbles their soul. Inevitably, the unrighteous learn to despair, and they learn to despise, they learn to hate, the righteous in their despair they turn hatred toward those who have the protection of the lord and the result is their condemnation those who crush god's people will eventually be judged by god in stark contrast verse 22 the lord redeems the life of his servants none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned the lord redeems how does he do that how does the lord redeem the life of his servants well this whole book the whole bible answers that question how does the lord redeem ultimately jesus dies in the place of sinners on the cross bearing their guilt paying the penalty of sin to rescue them from that penalty jesus dies in my place to take on that cost And we are ultimately in that way redeemed. He rises from the dead, having paid sin's price, that we may take refuge in Him and find life in Him and not be condemned with those who remain in their sin. We take refuge in him. How do we do that? Trusting faith in the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus, such that there is now no condemnation. How is that possible? Jesus paid the full price of the sin of all who are his children by faith in his work, so that we can say, as Romans 8 1 puts it, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, no judgment. And so we come back to this fundamental truth of Scripture. God delivers His people from all of their troubles. The one true and living God is a God who by His very nature rejoices to rescue, to ransom, to redeem, to save, to liberate, and to deliver His people. This is the theme of Scripture from cover to cover. We have Adam and Eve, and we have the rescue of God in the question, Adam, where are you? The voice of deliverance. He delivers Noah and his family from the flood. He rescues Job. He ransoms Abraham from paganism. He delivers Joseph and through him saves Israel. He redeems Israel from Egypt in the Exodus and in splitting the Red Sea. He liberates Israel from Babylonian captivity. And ultimately, Jesus liberates through his miracles. He liberates as He ransoms us from sin and death through His death such that there is now no condemnation. God delivers His people. This is His nature. And for those that are separated from that love, you have not placed your personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your liberator. I encourage you, look to Jesus and live. Turn from your sin and receive His grace. It will break the power of sin and death that is over you. Sin will bury you. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked. But Jesus will rescue you if you trust Him. But for those of us who have been born again by God's Spirit, we must return to this question of God's deliverance from all of our troubles. How do we understand that? Clearly, it's not merely a spiritual deliverance from hell. It doesn't fit the context in which David pens this psalm. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Not just one, not just the affliction of eternal damnation apart from the salvation of God. Not that. It means something else. Maybe, secondly, it's applicable only to believers under the Old Covenant with its unique emphasis on physical blessings. The problem is that both Paul and Peter use this psalm, and that's not how they quote it. They apply it to Gentile Christians under the New Covenant. This is the nature of God, not limited to a particular covenant. We must adopt a more robust, we must adopt a more sophisticated interpretation, if we want to use that word. This is no simple equation. I call out to God, He answers like my personal bellhop, and fixes everything when I ask Him to the way that I want Him to. That, like, of course, is not going to work. And again, we have false teachers who peddle that mush. If you just do the right thing, and if you are the right person, then God will always deliver you from all the problems of your life. No. But we still know this. God delivers His people from all their troubles. How He does that is nearly as nuanced as He is. We see all forms of it. In the pages of Scripture, we see Elisha and the Syrian army. We see a miracle of a whole army struck blind. We see it in stunning providences, such as in Esther. That night, the king couldn't sleep. He just happens to read about Mordecai's blessing upon him and goodness to him. Right when he was going to be asked for Mordecai's head. We see the deliverance of the Lord in an example such as this with David in Achish where he feigns insanity. That is, he uses a method of deliverance. But we read this same thinking in the writing of the Apostle Paul, Second Timothy 3, where he speaks in this same vein of his own life. And he says, God will deliver from all of our troubles. That brings us back to that third objection. Others may get delivered from their troubles, but not me. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Listen to one who is in prison. Listen to one who is about to have his head severed from his body and he knows it. He says God will deliver us. You may say, well, if that's deliverance. Who needs it? you're going to get your head cut off and you're in prison and you're saying God delivers you, I mean, then it just means nothing. Well, it means everything when we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the gospel of Christ is tasted and seen, when it captures our hearts, there is nothing that God does not use to deliver you. There is nothing that God does not use to deliver you. There is nothing from which God will not deliver you. He delivers His people from all of their troubles and that includes you. It includes you as His child and every trouble that you face. Don't take a trouble and an affliction and say it doesn't apply to this. Don't take yourself and say it doesn't apply to me. Paul knew all this. And he knew that no matter what we go through, we can say this, God is delivering me. He is near, and He will rescue me. From prison, from disease, from loss, from broken relationships, from betrayal, from abuse, from marital brokenness, from fear, from financial trouble, He will deliver us. Again, we can't have a simplistic answer to it, but when we bring the gospel to bear upon all of it, this is our salvation. Jesus has broken the power of sin. He has crushed the enemy of death. Such that our light, and this is what Paul calls it, this one in prison, this one about to have his head cut off, this same individual says, our light and momentary afflictions are working for us a greater degree of glory. When we are fully saved from the very presence of sin and united to join voices with the voices of heaven's throng in praise of the Lamb, we will know that we have all along been delivered. Paul's that spy flying home on the helicopter. He's not particularly concerned about the nicks and the scratches along the way, he's not concerned about the humiliation even that takes place. At the chess match. What he sees is his entrance into the presence of God. And he can say because he understands the gospel. To die is gain. So God may send a cloud and rain on your enemy's fire. He may send a chariots, an army of chariots of fire that deliver you. He may work through simple providences to deliver you. He may lead you to have strength in Him as a sword is brought down across your neck and your head is severed from your body. And we're tempted to say, okay, but if it's true that the Lord is delivering me from all of my troubles, I don't like how He's doing it. I want a rain cloud. I want an army of chariots of fire. That's what I want. I don't like how he's doing it because it doesn't feel like deliverance to me. Well, there's a hard answer to that. The hard answer is that's none of your business. He's sovereign. There's another hard answer to it, and that's a lack of faith in you. Not the kind that the false teachers say. If they don't heal you, it's because you lack faith. Not that but let's see it for what it is. I don't trust that He's near. He said it, and I'm telling Him, I don't think so. That's a hardness of it, but there's a glorious answer too. You don't like how God is delivering you from all of your troubles. He is. He's near. He is delivering you. But you don't like the way that He's delivering you from all of your troubles. Let me say this with absolute assurance. One day you will. One day you will. Romans 8.28 reminds us that God is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. He's working that deliverance for your good. Afflictions? Yes. But seek Him. Pray. Cry out to Him. Seek His face. Come to know Him through your suffering. Don't beg Him to merely take away the suffering. But plead with Him. Allow me to taste and see that you are good. Turn that trial into a new era of intense prayer. But know this, Christian. Know this and never forget it. As we bring the gospel to bear, hanging from a torturous cross, hovering between life and death, Jesus cried out to the Father in dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that so that you will never need to. He was forsaken. He was not redeemed so that you would never say, I've been forsaken. And you can always say, I've been redeemed. Know this for now and forever. Through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, God delivers His people from all of their troubles. He has, He is, and He will forever. Lord, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. We ask You, Lord, to strengthen us By the authority of your word. Not merely by the experience of life. And when we are delivered. And we see those providential workings. That favor us. That rescue us. We give you thanks. We praise you. We rejoice in it. But we also know as we consider this psalm. That there are those times and we don't see it. And I pray in behalf of those who here suffer affliction and trials may they be encouraged that many are the afflictions of the righteous but i pray that they'd also be encouraged to know that you are near you will never forsake them and that you will deliver them and you are delivering them may we all trust this and have confidence in it and for those who are under the condemnation of christ because they have not yet yielded to your mastery and to your saving grace, I pray that you draw them into that light, that they might taste and see that the Lord is good. That they might know the blessedness of resting in you, that they might know the fear, the reverent awe of the Lord, and be delivered from the ultimate enemy, from the ultimate trouble of sin and destruction. But where we've been so delivered, we pray, God, that you will help us to put all of the scratches and the cuts, all of the bruises, the bleeding, the brokenness and the pain, help us to put it all into perspective. Christ was abandoned that we might never be abandoned. Christ delivered us from all of our troubles. Help our unbelief. Through Jesus we pray.